just ask to do stuff. Can I do this? Can I do that rendering? Can I build that model? Can I do these drawings? Here's a bunch of precedents that I found that from other projects that you can dump into a folder and maybe they get used in the presentation, but maybe they don't. But I'm just going to come up with this stuff. I would imagine that would lead to the team trusting me more with a little bit more responsibilities. In school, Seth's projects were always memorable because he gave his work an eloquent narrative, whether it be for an assignment designing a tractor museum or making furniture pieces. He has been working as an architect for the last 10 years at a few firms in New York City after graduating and has a lot of experience to impart on younger architects about his time in the field practicing architecture. So listen up to Seth's interview now. All right, friends, 10 colleagues, 10 years is a podcast series where I interviewed 10 of my colleagues from architecture school 10 years after graduating. We all went to Texas A&M University and received a degree from the College of Architecture, but ended up in drastically different places. This podcast is a celebration of what a non-traditional architecture degree offers for the skills that it teaches. It's 10 individual stories of navigating a career path that's meant to be inspirational. And when I personally started my own architecture practice earlier this year, I attribute some of my success to this kind of degree program. So I hope that you get the same sort of inspiration from these stories, and thanks for listening. I'm Heather Pogue, and this is 10 Colleagues, 10 Years. So anyways, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I wanted to start off each episode with a story about each person and how I remember you from architecture school. Uh-oh. All good. So a memory that encompasses you pretty well happened in Dick Davison's class. We had that one hour lecture class freshman year, one day a week. Every week he gave a prompt and the next week you had to come back with an illustration of whatever the prompt was. There was a particular one where he asked everyone to illustrate something timeless. And there were always these vague, really abstract assignments and everybody would come back with what they thought that was. Yours was a baby's face smushed up (laughs) against a glass window. And I really appreciated the fact that every assignment you had, it wasn't just that one, but I think you always took a spin for yourself on what that was. I think you just always were yourself in the assignments. I think that was really important to having a voice. I hope that's right, that I tried to always bring something unique to the prompt, whatever the project was. Probably does have something to do with my parents, both being artists. I started out with Ryan Hill's class, and you were that with me too. And he yeah. was so nurturing and supportive that sometimes I could wing it. I started out college not putting a ton of effort into the work. And so sometimes I would think, here's an awesome idea. I got it. I want to just get it out. And then I can go hang out. And I don't need to stay up all night like everyone else does. And sometimes I would backfire when it wasn't fully thought through or executed. But we have to learn from it. Well, and I, I wanted to also start off. The first question is a pretty easy one. What was your fairy word? My fairy word? Right. So Ferry was the second professor. My second semester, it was a studio where we had to come up with a word to define us. Pretty out there. It's it's impossible to do, obviously. But I told the class that my word was faceted. Actually, that's not true. They they picked that for me because I I told them that I like to do different things. So I like to draw and I like to play music, playing drums in a band. And I came up with a bunch of different interests and they said multifaceted. And that sounded like a geometric word to like go through these assignments with so the word was faceted so you were assuming visually that that would be a good yeah yeah i would love to go back and do those assignments again because i think they weren't fully fleshed out but it was a really fun word i can't remember what some of the words were but i remember thinking that would be really hard to put into house (laughs) you know a, a, a formal gesture Well, you maybe had a little bit more foresight than a lot of people in thinking through the rest of the semester with that word, whereas most people were just trying to pick the perfect word. Right. It sounded more fun than some of the, like some people's word was shy or, you know, stuff that would be really hard to express architecturally or visually. But we we must have picked that one because it's, it's it's spun off a lot of ideas and it 
can imagine what that would look like in a lot of different scenarios. So faceted house and faceted black and white drawing and a faceted cube. The cube was really cool. That was a really awesome project because it's abstract enough that you don't have to worry about mechanical systems and plumbing systems and all the stuff that goes into a building. Just focus on three-dimensional geometry. And that was such a great exercise for a student that's just starting out in architecture school. Well, and would you say today you're still multifaceted? Would you say your word still describes you? I hope so. It's a point of pride to try to have different hobbies going on at once, different things I'm trying to do. I get really bored going in day in and day out, sitting at a desk and clicking a mouse and then going home and doing that the next day. So I try to be as much as possible. And I think that is a good trait to have as designers. You have to know a lot about a lot of different things. And so being able to take ideas from different places and you combine them and nothing really happens in a vacuum. So you have to have a breadth of interest and knowledge that you can draw from. I find it fun. I don't do it as much as I would like to, but I, I like to play guitar and I like to play drums in a band with some friends. And I like to work on house plans and renderings and freelance stuff on the side. Yeah. And I like to build furniture whenever I can. I haven't done that in a while, but I try to do all those things. That, and they're all creative in some way, but they're not exactly related to like So that's important. But then, you know, on the other hand, you, you start to think like, am I wasting all this free time that I have when I could be just focusing on one thing and getting really good at it? That's the battle. Yeah. There's curses to wanting to do multiple things, and then there's a lot of benefits to it. This question's a little bit more nebulous. If you could describe your four or five years in architecture school to have the audience understand, because it's studio focus, you have a cohort of people you're with, you spend a lot of time and effort, and right. you get a lot of feedback. Even if you're not collaborating on a project, you can turn to your neighbor and say, hey, what do you think of this? There's a lot of those conversations, and then we're also going through the same sequence of courses. It's a pretty rigid sequence, so I think it's unique in a lot of ways. So I'm trying to encapsulate what that meant. Right. I didn't realize how unique it was until we started. We got into it, and we started talking to other students in other fields and other departments. And since I've gotten out, and I've gotten to meet other people who went through a different degree program, how unique it is, because you are there with other creative people with your level of energy in one room for hours and hours. It is really fun to be there working with your hands, doing an assignment with other people there working on the same thing and having that community. When you're working on something, just like you're saying, when you ask for help, you're looking around, you're seeing what other people are doing and getting inspired by that. It's sort of funny when you go in and as you move through the room, you can see the ideas have traveled, have three like very squared rectangular geometries. And then as you move through the room, you know, you'll have more swoopy organic stuff. You're like, oh, all these people sit together. You can see the ideas, like where, where they originated and how they're traveling. Hopefully that prepares you for the kind of collaboration that you have to do in an office with people of other trades or clients or consultants. Man, I love school. I miss it. I, I yeah. wish I could go back just because you have such agency. It's a, broad, abstract prompt, and you can interpret it however you want, and you just have to back it up and submit something that is interesting and addresses those things and can be completely unique. One of the soul-crushing things you can get out is, oh, it's not so, I can't just do whatever I want. Or it's like, oh, my project manager has to approve this. The department has to approve this. It's very different. And it has to work. It has to stand up. And contractors have to buy into a way to build the thing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that super abstract creative part happens in a very compressed proportion of time at the very beginning, and then all the rest of it is, is figuring out how to build it. I like what you said about agency, because at a and I think I spent a lot of time trying to figure out my voice and never really found it. When I went back to grad school, I went to a much smaller program and totally got a lot more out of it and finding my voice. I think a and for me was trying to figure out what architecture was. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought about finding your voice. Do you think that's important? Well, for me, it has been extremely important. Andrew and I talk a lot about 
early bloomer versus a late bloomer, the Picasso versus Cezanne, where as painters, Picasso came into his fame fairly early on and was famous throughout his life. And Cezanne painted and painted, and it was only at the very end of his life that people recognized his genius. And right. so I think there's like two kinds of people in that regard, people that can come to something very early and people that spend a lifetime coming to it. And there's no right answer for that. Right. That's a that's true. There were a couple of queer shining stars at the very beginning. When they showed up freshman year, they're like we're all like eighteen years old. That person just crushed that assignment. They did twice as much work, fans up, there's no glue streaks and like they have a queer concept. Most of us, I would say, are not those people, and it took us a lot longer to figure out how do I put together an assignment. Right. Where do you fall in that? No idea. It's definitely a struggle. I do have an energy that I get excited. So if I can find something in the brief that gets me excited that I can explore, then I'm off, and I can generate something and produce work that I can present to people and talk about it. I think I probably had a couple of years at AM and then in grad school a year that I remember it's just not coming together. I'm showing up, I'm working, I'm exploring a lot of different things, and it's just not coming together. And sometimes those those projects seem really frustrating. And then sometimes the idea comes too quick and your job is to just not mess it up. And then and execute it put a ball on it and say that that one's done. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to mess with it too much. And my mom says this as a painter. She's like, you have to know when to stop. Once you get it to the right spot, you don't keep adding stuff. But in the the larger question of finding your voice, I wouldn't focus on it personally as much. I, I try to focus more on like, what is the interesting work to be doing? How do I get to be a part of it? So when I came to New York on an internship for the residency program in grad school, those projects that architecture research office were working on were really cool. And there was this competition for the TWA airport terminal designed by Saranen. The competition was just to like to renovate it and change the program to a hotel with a lounge and lobby and stuff. And I, I saw my colleagues working on that and I was like, wow, I have to just try to work on that in some way that I can. And they ended up not winning, but it was a beautiful proposal that they put together and I still think about that and reference it mentally all the time. Because that's something inspiring to you. Yeah, and, and stuff like that gets me excited. And so I just try to follow those projects. And I cook box at my office now. I try to keep, a, keep my head up and see what projects are coming online that I could be a part of. I don't know if that's related to your question. I feel like it's sort of tangent. It's all important. What steered you towards architecture school to begin with? My parents were both artists and creative. I saw them working and I thought, that looks cool. I should do that. And I was always into Legos as a kid, like most of us. You'll, you'll hear that. <laughs> Love Legos. And then as I got a little older, I started to draw. I got into this weird phase of drawing hot rods. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to paint flames on cars. I went through a period of flame, a flame period where I was painting on drawings, obviously not real cars painting flames on old hot rods. And I thought, that's what I can do. And then my parents, as it came time to apply for colleges, they were like, you don't want to do art because there's no stability in that. You're self-employed. There's no money. We had a career day and this guy came in. His name is Robert Luna. He's in San Antonio and he does these incredible San Antonio mission-inspired house. And he drew these amazing sketches. And I thought, wow, that's that's pretty cool. I'm just going to apply to that. That sounds fun. And it, I didn't put a ton of thought into it. And I've been really lucky that I've enjoyed it so much. And it worked out. School really gave me that outlet for being creative that I don't think is in a lot of fields. There are a lot of creative fields out there. But there's also a, a lot that would not scratch that itch for me. I think your story is very similar to mine. My parents saw an apt for me using both sides of my brain and they're like, you should just try architecture school. And then 14 years later, here I am, an architect. I'm just lucky that I went through it and liked it and stuck with it. It's a fairly applicable degree. And that's, I think, why I wanted to do this because it is so broad what you end up 
getting to do with the skills that you're taught and the education that you get. It really is. And you're seeing that more and more with everyone's talking about design thinking. I don't keep up with a lot of business journals or anything, but I'm hearing that word a lot more than I used to. They're trying to apply the design process to other avenues, the ways that a business is managed or the way that they figure out what their product is or their services or find the markets, use design thinking to find the problem, come up with their concept and execute it. I've done a couple of reviews now, which is really fun after graduating, getting out and going to a design class and seeing their work. And you say, okay, I see where you put this stair, or I see how you put these columns on the front of the building. Did that reinforce the design concept that you first explained, or does it detract from it? When you were in school, how did you think your career would manifest? That's a good question. The thing that I always come back to is that I thought it would be a lot more design. I thought it would be a lot more creative and more design work, and it's a lot more technical, and it's more of a puzzle and figuring out how things can fit into a space rather than really broad and creative and abstract. It's a lot more about being really organized, putting things together into a space in an organized way that will fit, getting very detailed with each part. So you collect as much information as you can about things so you can predict how it's going to look in the end. And that's a very hard thing to do. There's so many different fields, so many technicalities you have to organize and put together that that is most of your time. I get frustrated Mm -hmm. with how much it's just organizing. Yeah, I always say it's 90% technicalities and details and 10% design. The 10% isn't widely distributed. And that was the impetus for starting my firm. That's the fun part. And to go through and do the rest of the project. Some people don't need this. I do to stay motivated. I, I like to be there in the concept phase to then carry the thing out because it is such a long game. Right. You're not always a part of it, when you, especially when you first get out of school. You're not always in those conversations or those meetings where we talk about the what is the concept? What is this this project? How are we going to tackle it? It's, you're, you're more there when they're like, we need a model built. You're there when they're like, we, we need you to put all this data into the Excel spreadsheet. We need you to organize the materials by grade. It's a culture shock for sure to go from school where you stand up and you present your ideas. And you go from that to sitting in, a, in an office where you are the lowest person on the totem pole and they, you do the most boring work. That's a good segue. Briefly describe what you do now. I'm right now a designer at Cookbox Architects in New York, and I just got licensed last year, so I can call myself an architect. Congrats. That's a big deal. Thank you a lot. I was very frustrated whenever, and I don't know why we do this to ourselves. What do you do for the past six years? I would say, I'm an architect. Well, actually, I can't say that I'm an architect. I'm not supposed to say that, but... Countless times you have to explain that, yeah. I'm an architectural designer. They're like, oh, is that like an architect? Because technically you don't want to say you're still an intern, but you technically are. Our fields, an intern means like you're a summer intern or you're a temporary there for six months or something. I can finally say that, an architect. Um, I'm working on a project in Brooklyn that's a tower. It's at the Domino Sugar Factory, and it's really... Cool because our developers are building five different projects all in one group of blocks. So it's sort of like a sub-neighborhood of Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And shop did the master plan, but they're hiring different architects to do each building. And we came up with this really cool grid of precast concrete that is a little bit brutalist, but has a more refined edge with very, very, very white precast concrete and it's polished to expose the aggregate. So it'll look like stone. It will. It'll look like stone. The idea was it'd be fun to reference the sugar history there and to look a little bit like sugar crystals when we polished it. These panels get up to 25 or 30,000 pounds with windows punched in them. A crane picks them up and they set them on the slab and they just started construction. So there's there's a cellar floor and the ground floor report, and they're building panels in the factory, in the plant. And we're seeing photos of them 
people, and it's really exciting. It's all happening. It's like you do this stuff in a computer, but it's real. Seeing things built is one thing that you don't see enough in school that makes it very rewarding when you get out yeah. uh, and walking around the space. And also, you see what's important and what's not important. And, you know, a lot of times when I'm like, my first project at, a, at an office called BRB, that was, that was one of the first projects I was getting built that I got to work on. It was just him and Hall, and I would torture myself over what's the right color to match this other color. We had these sun, these louver sunshades that were shading a window next to insulated metal panel, and the colors weren't exactly right. I compared the colors so many times, and I would go back and forth, finally just picked one, I sent it out there, and it looks great. After three days, it gets dirty. The sun moves, and the colors are all different each time of day, depending on when you look at it and the angle. So you see what doesn't matter. Like a lot of stuff will just work out. You don't need to torture yourself over everything. You have to really prioritize what's important and what's not. But it is very rewarding seeing those things go up. And you're like, oh, I, I looked at that on my computer for three years. You know? Like it just yeah. takes so long to, to have that portfolio of projects that you could say, I did that. Yeah, doesn't it seem like it would be so much more rewarding, but also we would learn so much more if, as soon as we designed it, it was built. And then we could, because all that stuff would still be fresh in your mind, you'd be like, oh, that works, this didn't work, that worked. You know, you could move on uh, a lot faster and develop your your skills faster and, and be a better designer if things happen quicker. Yeah, it takes so long to go through. I'm still not through the array of issues that could happen. Every time it's something new, there's always something new that happens that you learn from and you can take to the next project. You know the way it's supposed to be the next time, but there's an infinite number of those things. Well, it must be really exciting for you to be that person that it's, it's sort of landing on because you don't, so, right? So, so you're starting your own business and you don't have a project manager to go to to be like, oh my God, everything's fa- everything is failing. What do I do? That must be terrifying and also exciting for you. Yeah, I'd say that's a good way to describe it. I mean, the buck stops at you. And I knew I was going to have these struggles and learning from them was going to be a huge challenge. Yeah, I think that's something where maybe it's the architectural education. They teach us that you should have an idea and then you should figure it out. And then everything goes with you and you either get credit for an awesome idea or you get blame for a terrible idea. Yeah, It's not like that for most people than the traditional practice because it's a group of people and there's a hierarchy and there's no one person is making all the decisions. There's a lot of times I want to turn next to me and there's no one there to ask, hey, what would you do in this situation? Or how would you handle this? Or have you done this before? I'd like to know how you did it, which is a great thing about working at an office like where you are, is you have that knowledge base to go to. That's something that is not natural to me, but I'm trying to be better at it, to go out and when I, when I have an issue, go find someone with it and ask them like, hey, how'd you deal with this? This is something I'm trying to work on, but I tend to sit and like research as much as I can, but probably someone has dealt with this before. Like there's no new issues or new problems that I have to remind myself uh, a lot and have to go find someone. How do you handle that when you're working for yourself? I've built a little cohort of other sole proprietors that I can call up and say, Hey, for instance, the other day I have a project here in Seattle, a house that's going through a remodel and it's kind of a borderline gray area of if it's going to be one kind of permit or another kind of permit. And I wanted to tell the client confidently which one it was going to be because they have time and money consequences. And so I just called up uh, another architect friend who owns a business and does house remodels also. And he's like, well, I think it's probably this kind of permit. I've done that one before and I've, I've gone through a couple projects like this and I, I think you can confidently say it's this one. And so I think it's important if you don't have that feedback loop in your office, if you're the only one, but having people you can reach out to, to ask the harder questions to. So the more independent you are and the more independent your business is, the more you have to proactively develop a network of expertise that you can rep you can go to yeah and then you also realize like you're saying at your office there's 
there's people you could probably go to. I realized that was such a valuable resource that I no longer have. And it's like you appreciate something when you don't have it. Yeah, it is good. Um, one of the best things that I, I learned when I was at BRB, this one of my project managers, he's been kind of a good mentor to me. He said that you think that when you start out working in, in clients and contractors are asking questions, you have to know everything. Mm-hmm, yeah. You don't really have to have the answer to everything. You just have to know where to find it. That's what I try to remind myself. And actually, I try to not answer now. I try to not answer mm-hmm. too quickly off the cuff from memory because I'm probably going to get it wrong. I try to always keep it written down or keep it organized in some way that I know where to go find that answer. Just pull it up quick and tell them. That was an important lesson for you. Yeah, no one tells you that construction site, your first few construction meetings, that a contractor is going to ask you questions and you don't have to know answer and be confident that you can go back and find it but you don't have to know and there's it's funny now like the same thing happens where you don't know but you're able to handle it where you know like okay i i can go back and get that for you you know how to answer without having to answer right you have a certain level of comfort with not knowing things yeah that's a better way to put it you just mentioned a mentor but who has been pivotal in your journey over the last 10 years and maybe even in school that directed you to what you do now or has gotten you where you are today? There were so many great people that I've been able to learn things from. Starting out in Rodney Hill's class was incredible because he was so free and open and you could say, I love red, like the color red, and be like, all right, let's get into it. Let's figure out how to make something red. He was really great, but then Matthew, so many people in, in Frank Dave at Texanum were really supportive and I learned a lot from. Some of the hardest ones, like Marcel, when I was in the class, I didn't feel like I did very well, but when I got out of it, I was like, wow, I learned really how to work hard and like produce stuff. My last studio at University of Texas was Clay Shortall, and he's this younger guy that worked with Zaha and then left come to Austin to teach and to start his own practice. And we did a studio that was not even related to architecture at all. It was augmented reality. We kept it really open. So people were hacking where to control the root of a model that they had built. Other people were processing sound in different ways. When you walk through a hallway, it echoed differently. And one of the ones I did was I found this hack from another school. The students had done a basically an EEG headset that was reading brain waves. It would attach to their forehead. That data, those waves would be brought into a computer, into an Excel document, and they could use that to control different things. So I took that and applied it to my understanding of creativity and like how to best get into the zone. It turns out from what I was reading that it's certain it's the alpha waves, which are tend to happen more when we're relaxed. So anyway, so that he so he was really inspiring just in that he let us completely go off on a tangent and just go after whatever we were interested in, as long as we could produce something at the end, as long as we had a project to talk about at the end. So those were some of the people in school, but then in an office, I had this one project manager who he's from Long Island and has lived here his whole life. He's the most unassuming person in terms of traditional architects is like this jerk that wears all black, plus <laughs> a cigarette, and he's like very pompous. And this guy was not like that at all. He was just practical and knew how to get things built. And he was so great whenever I would ask, everything's falling apart. What do I do? The contractor's saying this. He was like, no, this is the process. Here's how it works. Just relax. He was so good at knowing the process. Yeah. We've been doing this for hundreds of years. Architects have been efficient and having to solve problems. And mm-hmm. so there's a process to it. The AIA has all these forms that you follow. Certain things are our responsibility. Certain things aren't. Don't worry about it. It's all in this system. He was really good because he was so level-headed and, and calm and organized. That's really important, too, is seeing that side of it, because that's really how things get built. That's how people learn to trust you. You can't just be the creative genius. You have to actually be organized, and things have to work. They have to last. So he was really great. Another job I had was my internship that I mentioned when I did residency in New York, the architecture research office. Their office was really collaborative, and so they did let anyone who had just started 
be in on all the design meetings and they're in front of the client and they're not necessarily presenting the work, but they're around it. They're exposed to it. Education happens a lot faster for them in an office like that. And they can do that because they're a smaller, more nimble practice. They're very efficient and everyone has a lot more work to do. They work really hard. But the learning curve is quicker, I imagine. I think that's the theory behind it. It's like, let the interns sit in on the meetings, be there so that they know why we're doing it. And they're that much more informed when they have to do their portion of the work. I think it's very rare to have the opportunities that you're talking about, but at the same time, it's shocking because you're right. There's got to be a little bit more trust. And if you do that, if you allow an intern to do more, to sit in front of a client, it gets you somewhere quicker than relegating someone to a limited sphere. And I was actually really surprised when I interviewed, I've interviewed at multiple offices. I've worked at seven firms at this point before starting my own firm. And it's amazing to me how little opportunities there are still. It's culturally, there's still this uh, corralling around how somebody gets to grow. And I think it's hard to break through that culture. Right. And there's there's only so much ideating that someone that we can do like it's a, it's so much more like we're saying figuring out and there's so little of uh, that that really creative time that when i imagine when i'm a project manager i'll be very if fighting fighting that urge to control everything and make it like it's my project let me let me own it and like you guys just do the, do the work that i tell you to do but i'm going to come up with all the ideas and figure it out yeah because there's so little of that to go around yeah yeah. Well, and we were talking about earlier, the, if the buck stops at you, it's a little bit harder to relinquish control in some ways because it's you're going to have to answer for something at the end of the day. But I think it takes a good leader to recognize that and to still give somebody opportunities where they can at the time that they need them. I think it takes a good leader to navigate that because it is a hard, challenging thing in our field and in a lot of fields. And going in and... Um... As a more inexperienced person that's lower in the, in the hierarchy, it's probably a good thing to just ask to do stuff. Can I do this? Can I do that rendering? Can I build that model? Can I do these drawings? Here's a bunch of precedents that I found that from other projects that you can dump into a folder and maybe they get used in the presentation, but maybe they don't. But I'm just going to come up with this stuff. I would imagine that would lead to the team trusting me more with a little bit more responsibilities. You're continually showing up and asking for it by contributing in a way beyond what the realm is you're, you're kind of being given to contribute in. I think that's good advice for everyone. It's sort of hard because you you expect your project managers to see everything that you do. And I'm learning that it takes a lot more like, hey, I did this. Hey, look at this. Come Because your project managers are so busy. And I'm now in an 85-person office and it's... They're really, they have a lot on their plate and they get a ton of emails and they, and it's, it's a new thing, to, a new skill to, for me, a new thing that I'm trying to learn and get better at is like presenting my work to them and constantly checking in, not in an annoying way, but in the, in the right, like striking that balance between like keeping them informed, keeping them up to date. Also like not just toiling in the background and being forgotten about to trying to like stay visible and stay like, in front so that people are like, oh, you know, go talk to Seth about that because I know he's working on this and like, he can help you out. So that's a unique skill that I don't necessarily have. Being more visible. That's a good way to put it because they're not able to pay attention with all the stuff going on. So you kind of have to be the more proactive one to say, hey, over here doing this, just wanted you to know. It's a unique skill to be able to interrupt someone in an easy way, in a polite way that is not annoying. At the right time. Right. So you talked a little bit about after A&M, you went to graduate school at UT, University of Texas, for those who don't know UT. And I'm curious to hear like how that was different than your undergrad. They're very different, but we were probably a little more technical or nuts and bolts at A&M. It's probably a little bit more theoretical at UT. Well, and then what, so I know you mentioned BARB as one of your jobs in New York, one of your firms you worked for, and then now you're at Cook Fox. Were those the two that you have worked for? Yes. I worked, I did a, my six month residency at Architecture Research Office, ARO. And then, yeah, when I got out, uh, 
got a job at BRB Architects, and they were they were really small, and they they did school. They did a lot of school projects, like institutional work. They previously had been much bigger in the nineties. They, they kind of slowly different partners left and broke off. There was an interiors team that we separated. And when I got there, it was mostly institutional work. The partner just had relationships with specific schools, so it was repeat business. It was pretty easy for him. Phone would just ring. Okay, we can do that project. They didn't go after a, a ton of stuff that wasn't paid work. In a sense, I was a little frustrated that they weren't as ambitious as I wanted to be at that point in my career starting out. But they, I did learn a lot about how to build stuff, how important it was to keep up relationships with clients. And I was going upstate to work on a project where they were in construction and I was the only architectural representative there. So that was when I, I found out that contractors are going to grill you tough questions and you're not going to know the answers and you have to figure out how to answer them and get how to find the answer. Now, transitioning it to Cookbox has been really great because they have such a wider scope and they do larger buildings. It's funny because we actually, at BRB, I competed against them at Cookbox, ultimately won and is now in my office. <laughs> they have a, they're led by Rick Cook, who's a really magnetic, interesting person, just fascinating to hear him speak. Such a wealth of knowledge and such a passion for being a, an architect's architect. He knows about how putting slag in concrete makes it uh, more sustainable than typical concrete. He knows about the pattern, the changing patterns in the city of Brooklyn, the borough of Brooklyn versus in Manhattan, and how condos are, are getting more you know, affordable, or if, if, if rentals are a better thing to start building out, like he really follows all these trends and he's really an architect's art. So he's been, he's been great to, to learn from wherever I'm around him. Um, yeah. But then there's a lot of other really talented people there too that are, are very passionate. And their focus at Cookbox is, is on sustainability and what they call biophilia, which is mm-hmm. ourselves with nature whenever we can, because that's, so important to our health and our the the functioning of our brains and how we how we work and so we always have visual connections to nature. We have green rooms. We um, in our office we have two beehives, that, <laughs> which is which is crazy in New York City. I don't know where they're flying around and finding plants to pollinate. <laughs> they're coming back and they're making honey. <laughs> you don't know what that honey is made out of. <laughs> Not sure. Yeah. So I guess what prompted you to switch to the other firm and was it Cook Fox pretty focused on that or did you go through a search or how did you make the transition? Yeah, I was doing the search. BRB was sort of closing up shop. The main partner was retiring. And so I had to keep my eye open on opportunities that that were coming up. But Cook Fox, I was drawn to them because they did the Bank of America Tower, one by part, and they do a bunch of residential high-rises and they're building so much of New York and making so many decisions and having such an effect on the city that it's been really fun and that, that's what really drew me. It just so happened that I that I was involved in the Emerging Green Builders and was lead accredited and had done all these things at Texas A&M you know, so many years back. But And that probably helped me get the job a little bit and that was on my resume. But my focus wasn't at, at the time so much about sustainability. It was more about getting my hands on larger projects that were really shaping the city. That was the exciting work for you. And I've looked at the work. It's pretty fantastic. So when you describe Richard Cook, it seems synonymous with the work that I've seen. The way you describe him is the way I would describe the work, too. Right. I'm sure a lot of people put a lot more thought into this than I have, but it's. I would love to see like what's what's in common between all these the leaders of architecture offices because it must take so much strong will and vision to outline a path for each office and because they have to differentiate themselves but right. they have to they have to still be successful and get clients they have to compete against other clients and they have to come up with a particular they don't necessarily have to come up with a particular style or voice but certainly seems to help those partners that do have that seem to do pretty well as a leader of an office. That's what I've discovered starting my practice is getting work is so nebulous because it's not, you're not, you don't have necessarily 
a targeted audience in a lot of ways. It, they're just out there floating around and you have to kind of put yourself in these different avenues to be able to have access to potential clients. It's not like you're developing a video game and you know you're you know the you know how to get the channels to get the product bought and you know who your target is. Architecture is a little bit different in that everybody needs something built um but how to how to connect those people with an architect is there's not really a straight shot like if you were a product designer or right another profession so i think that's a big challenge it seems like you have to strike this balance between we're going to go after the projects that we really want mm-hmm. and then we also have to pay the bills and yeah. we have to like build we have to build stuff yeah and we have to take on projects that we may, may not otherwise want to take on so yeah. Depending on how the economy is or how busy we are as an office, we have to take, we can right now at, at our office. I'm I'm part of the the um the Monday morning project manager meetings where they they talk about how you know we actually were able to say no to a couple projects this week because we're we're pretty busy right now. So it's a good it's, it's a, a good, good thing. But, yeah, but our, so we have this. The I don't know how it's. Our marketing team has put it together, but we are a mission-based studio, a mission-focused studio uh, that that really wants to make make the environment better for a lot of people that wouldn't normally have access to a, to housing or to schools. Or so, for instance, we built this this school in Cambodia for these kids that were living in. To me, when I saw the photo, it was basically a trash dump. Yeah. And it was, it was pro bono work, and it was this really incredible, beautiful, uh, naturally ventilated school that we that we built for these kids. But we can't always do that because we have to get paid. So we we do a lot of residential market rate towers for for developers who otherwise don't don't need our help. They can go to someone else. And yeah. It. But we we try to get them to take us because maybe we can make that neighborhood a little better for those. People that have to live next to those buildings, or the people that are going to be living in those buildings, mm-hmm. but there's a constant battle between, or finding the balance, I should say, between work that's going to pay the bills and stuff that we really care about and want to do. And yeah, we've been able to choose projects that we do care about, whether it's because that one developer we, we believe in what they believe in and making that neighborhood better, mm-hmm. or it's or it's something more like the school in Cambodia that we did, but. So that so, is that also a, a, something that you're dealing with now? That you're starting your own office. Is like I have to do stuff that can pay the bills, but I really want to be doing other stuff that's different. You know, I've been very fortunate in that um, I kind of built this business on the side, and so I worked for the firm. It keeps like I hear myself. Sorry, I don't know what's happening there. I, so I've been very fortunate in that I've taken a lot of work on the side and I haven't necessarily, because I was able to build up a kitty of, of funds to start out with. And it's, you know, I would say architecture is a relatively, it's a high barrier to entry in a lot of ways, but in terms of starting a firm, being 10 years experience, there's a pretty low barrier. It doesn't take an office um, to rent. You can work from home. Um, you just have to buy a couple software programs and have a robust computer. But um, and there's a couple other things in between there. But in the sense, it's low barrier that you can set something up pretty easily. Um, and so I've just been fortunate in that the first few clients I've had have been um, a joy to work with. And I haven't had to. I've said no to projects. I think that was one of the things that I like. We talked about ownership earlier. I wanted to be able to say no if I didn't want to take work from somebody I didn't think would be a great relationship or would have the full trust and uh, be a good process because we do spend so much time in the in-between when something you get a project and when something's built. There's a lot of in-between work that I want to enjoy every aspect of that. And so if I get a sense from someone that, I, I think this would be a big hurdle for whatever reason. I've said no, actually. Um, so I guess I'm a firm believer. I have a lot of faith in that work is out there and it will come if you're if you're putting yourself out there. 
And I've been fortunate in that I haven't had to worry about that yet. Uh, maybe I will come to terms with it and take some jobs <laughs> that I have to do for for money. But I also, I think I set up my lifestyle in a way where I don't, I'm not dependent on a, a terribly large salary. And I, I like to keep a minimal lifestyle. So it's uh, it just, okay. yeah, it just seems like a natural progression for me to do this. Um, and I was also just struggling with, in a lot of ways, um, taking ownership over things that weren't fully mine. And that was a, that's been a challenge my entire life. And it's not necessarily the right way to go, but I found myself having a hard time fully engaging of a mission of a firm if I didn't help create that mission. And that's just me. That's not a lot of people. There's a lot of people that can fall into that fairly easily and it motivates them and they can work hard. And for me, it was not an environment where I was motivated to work hard because I wanted to be the person saying, this is what we do and this is how we do it and stand up for that. Um, But I think I was going to add to the the part about having um, the client can trying to get clients and it being a nebulous process. I think like you're talking about with Cook Fox, there's a vision there that does connect you with a certain audience, like the developers that you want to work with. So I think that's what I want to add to that is I have, yeah, trying to balance like what your vision is with the work that's out there, but it also helps you get the work that you desire to do. So it kind of goes hand in hand. So I found too that you have to have an aspiration of what your work looks like to be able to go after the, the, that work. So you're not starting from scratch. You're able to, you know, start conversations and networks with people that are in that same realm. So you're not just waiting for the the work to come to you. You're creating a vision for what's the, what's the, five-year plan here what kind of work are we doing yeah exactly yeah you're able to sell your sell your ideas better having that overall mission in in mind yeah exactly so would you say after working at cook fox you've been there a few years now i've been there two years years. a little over two um where do you see yourself i guess since it's been 10 years where do you see yourself over the next 10 years that's a really good question, and I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. It's something that I'm thinking about. I was so, I was so focused on getting the test done and mm-hmm. and and behind me that I'm trying to figure that out. I don't know. I, I would, I would love to work more on the projects that I really care about. I'm, I feel like as I get older, I'm, I'm less interested in doing geometrically interesting, formally interesting objects. Because it, it's just there's so many people that do that so well, and and that's such a rat race. But the really interesting ones to me are the ones that change the way that people are living, like the way that changes city, for instance, like the the way that the High Line, you know, totally changed the changed that whole section of Manhattan and, and the way that people interact with it, and um, these things that become public space. Or, or that add to the public space of the city and aren't just for the rich people that built the condo or bought the condo. Yeah. Really interesting to me. Yeah. We're working on our, our office. I'm not working on, but our office did a couple projects in Brooklyn called Pacific Park. And our, our work there was really the anchors of, of, of a long couple, couple blocks long park. And we have two, we have two buildings on, one on either end and so we spend a lot of time thinking about how does how does this park integrate into the neighborhood and become an amenity and a public space for those people that live there and like how do we become a good neighbor to those people that kind of stuff is much more interesting than um this other project that i worked on which was beautiful but it was a it was a private residence out in the hamptons and it <laughs> i was talking with one of the project managers one of the dining designers on it recently and I was like so I was kind of joking I was like when's the when's the grand opening party when do we go <laughs> and he was like oh it's going to be down the wire and the clients are going to move in and we will never see it again we'll probably never see it because it's it's so it's so um private it's such a private residence on a private road in private city like we're, everything about it is to allow those people to go and get away from uh, other people like us who want to <laughs> 
that, that stuff is just less interesting and, and less rewarding for me personally right now. I'm much more interested in the public space and the public sphere and how, how does a neighborhood change? Yeah. You know, that's something that I've struggled with too, is that's my passion ultimately, or that's a lot of what I started out architecture wanting to do because it has more, it's multidisciplinary. You're touching more people. I think something I've always struggled with, with architecture is trying to find a way to touch a lot of people when it's really relegated to such a small percentage of the population that you know, design is a luxury in a lot of ways. Um, so I think it's really cool that you are wanting to do more meaningful work like that and finding a way to do it with Cook Fox. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, and some people go off on, on other branches where they really focus on something small and manageable like furniture or, or uh, objects. And that's, that has a very, very strong draw because you can sort of wrap your head around it and get into it. Um, but for whatever reason, I've always kept kept my uh, my focus on on larger larger projects that affect more people. But you know, Johnny, I've did the iPhone and like he affect you know that affects billions of people all over the world. So it's mm-hmm. it's, it's not necessarily um, uh, either or. It could be both, I guess. Yeah, that's a good point. You answered all my questions. Well, I'll, I'll let you go, but uh, thanks for asking me to do this. Yeah. And we'll do it in 10 years again. Yeah. Where are they now? <laughs> Good deal. Enjoy okay. the rest of your Sunday. Good catching up. Talk to you later. Bye. Talk to you later. Like I mentioned in the introduction, Seth has a wealth of experience and good advice about how to make a difference at an architecture firm by making yourself seen and heard, being engaging, and asking questions to learn more. I enjoy seeing Seth's journey continue with that inspiringly positive outlook. Stay tuned for the next episode where I interview a colleague that is so over architecture. He now aspires to be a firefighter after escaping his office job for Costa Rica next week on 10 Colleagues, 10 Years.